Well, hello, hello, dear listener, and welcome back to a new episode of uh, The Panoramas. And today I'm very excited to present you our first guest in this new season, Dr. David Bozold, who was also our guest in the previous season. And Dr. David Bozold is um, the managing director of the Graduate School of North American Studies in Berlin. He's also uh, the Dean of Studies of the John F. Kennedy Institute in Berlin. Uh, and topics of his academic interests include uh, Canadian foreign and security policy, transatlantic relations, uh, NATO, and all things related to those topics. And most importantly, David is a wonderful person with whom you can have very insightful conversations on many diverse topics, including, of course, uh, about international relations and security. And today you are going to hear one of those conversations that we uh, usually have with David uh, discussing many different problems, many different issues. But throughout this conversation, we specifically focused on this idea of multipolarity uh, and we tried to revisit this idea of multipolarity that we discussed on our previous episode in relation to the ongoing war in Ukraine. This is all I have to say about this uh, brilliant conversation. Uh, so if you like it and if you like our podcast, please subscribe, uh, share with your friends and as always, enjoy. Well, hello, David. And Good morning, so Dimitri. Welcome to like the new season of our podcast. So it's glad to be back with you as our first guest. Um, and uh, yes, I guess it's, it's a very hard time for everyone. So I would say I want to ask you maybe a little bit more on a personal note, like how do you maybe feel about modern world, feel about modern European security, um, and basically what's on your what's in your mind in relation in relation to that. Well, I guess if I have to sum it up on one word, I would say it's pretty depressing. Um, so I think that's that's how I feel. Um, on the other hand, I have always been raised to be an optimist. So um, I try to find also maybe some positive signs, but I have to admit it's pretty hard at the moment. Yes, I guess uh, it's very kind of dark time. Um, but I would say uh, my, my interest would be, uh, so how do you like, like really kind of situate yourself in this whole situation and um, maybe um, yeah, or do you have any ideas how to solve it would be, I guess, like too, going too, too, for, too, too forward in, in the podcast. But something, uh, something like how does it resonate with you? Like um, just maybe something going beyond just horrible and um, dark. Well, I'm not an armchair diplomat, right? Luckily, <clears throat> or I'm not supposed to be one. And there are many out there. Um, I, I guess the, the main problem is something that we talked about without an audience some weeks ago, and that was basically just after the the war or the, the Russian attack on Ukraine started, and that is um, that there seem to be two irreconcilable narratives that are emerging and they are in a way hardening or becoming more explicit and one is sort of this this western 
it's all about our freedom and Western way of life narrative. And uh, then there is certainly a sort of counter narrative on the, on the Russian side. I think if you think of the entire situation from the end of a, of a political um, settlement or, or peace, I mean, there, there is one thing that is pretty evident. And that is that, I mean, either you could have something like a repetition of the Cold War, which would technically be uh, also geographical separation where you would have something like a Russia-China axis. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what some analysts now say. And then we have something like um, a European uh, West, including, of course, um, all NATO and, and EU countries and maybe some kind of more or less neutral Ukraine that the West is, is sort of cooperating with. Uh, the other thing is, is of course to somehow find that maybe 20, 30 years down the road um, some kind of, of settlement that would also include Russia. Um, because, I mean, in the end, if you look at, at history, even with Imperial Russia under Katharina the Great and others and Tsars, I mean, there were always connections between mm -hmm. other European countries and, and capitals. Um, there were even... Russians who, or at the aristocracy that was either expected or um, supposed to learn French, for instance, so that was a, a common language also to show your kind of educational attainment and also to show you maybe your attachment or rapprochement to, to Europe uh, or, or the West. Um, and I think this, this the West is something that's, that's new in a way now as opposed to previous years. Mm -hmm or previous decades, centuries, um, I think where we may have talked about Europe, or wider Europe, or Eurasia, mm -hmm. uh, we now tend to have discussions where people talk about mm -hmm. the West as some kind of yeah. entity that is self-explanatory. And of course, that is opposed to Russia, as it is today. And yeah. I, I would agree to a certain extent, of course, that there are, I mean... I strongly oppose the war, um, and I—I I mean, I, I don't want to find any excuse for that. But I think um, if you just think about some peaceful constellation, we have to somehow find or imagine things that go beyond uh, this. Yeah, I mean, uh, th th there are two phases. I would say one is that we have to find um, a peace that also. Ukrainians can live with because I think there is also a lot of hypocrisy um, on the side of, of German politicians to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is, of course, also the wider picture of, of how, what is our future with Russia mm -hmm. and generally with the rest of the world because mm -hmm. uh, as Germans uh, and German companies, um, yeah, this country is, is pretty much working together or doing mm -hmm. business with more countries than many other states in the world. And I think mm. that brings us to uh, also what we wanted to discuss today, and that's multipolarity, yes. because yes. I think... Um, that would be... I mean, if there is something is the West, I would say, in this kind of, like, as you as you mentioned, like, this in this kind of framework, there is idea of, like, rules-based order, or you can call it whatever, whatever like, you, you label it, but this an idea of the West as something like a superior kind of power, you can say, superior entity that kind of determines how others should live. 
Uh, and I would say like multipolarity would be something on the Chinese and Russian side, something kind of alternative to that. At least, I mean, officially that's, that's the rhetoric. Right now, there's like two kind of poles, I would say two frameworks that are really kind of like very uh, apparent in this conflict. Um, yes, and I guess uh, uh, coming back, I guess uh, like in the last podcast, we discussed a lot multipolarity. I just want to guess like on, on, the, on the note of Cold War, I don't really think, I don't really see it as a Cold War, just because of course Cold War, as we discussed in the last podcast, it was uh, something like a settlement of status quo. And everyone was more or less interested in preserving, especially in Europe, the status quo or this idea of kind of like boundaries. No one really, um, no one, no one would uh, go beyond, beyond, so to speak, like those status quo settlements. But now it's really different because, of course, with Russia and with whole like this, uh, you could say, like for example, in Putin's mind, that's like what's happening now. It's like the war not just between Russia and Ukraine, but it would be like the war between Russia and the West, uh, where like Ukraine is just like a, kind of like a it's, a, it's a part of this broader conflict, so to speak. But it's not, it's not just about Ukraine, of course, it's about NATO. But do you think, I mean, what, what you mean mm -hmm. is, whereas most of the Western media say, or Western analysts mm -hmm. say, that we should support yeah. Ukraine, and I mean, mm -hmm. I'm fine with that, um, but that it's 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 more or less a it's a question where freedom or the Western way of life is mm -hmm. actually determined by what is happening in in Ukraine, but where at least rhetorically mm -hmm. um, most Western politicians will say that we are not involved as a conflict party. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a war between Russia and Ukraine. You would say that this is not the case in Russia, where no. Russia really says this is a war of us as Russians against, mm -hmm. against no, I mean, the West. And we do have allies. We, we now have China. Yes. Uh, we also have Belarus. Um, mm -hmm. And we also have other maybe Central Asian mm -hmm. um, countries mm -hmm. that, that support us or that are Okay. Our allies, we have international or mm -hmm. regional institutions mm -hmm. to back that up. So, um, is that what you mean? So, you think there is a, is a, is a yes. difference there? Yeah, I mean, in terms of war, uh, I guess as as we just discussed uh, before before turning on the podcast, Mike's is this idea of, of course, that the West heavily involved in like uh, intelligence sharing and heavily involved in providing arms. So, of course, uh, Russia just simply doesn't see it as a as a neutral kind of like block or as neutral. You know, West as a neutral entity. Of course, they see it as a direct involvement into the conflict. And, uh, of course, with sanctions, you could also think about Putin said and declared, I mean, Putin labeled the sanction as a war, which is, of course, is not too far off if you also think about, like, the whole, like, the bunch of ideas that are now around in terms of how we could proceed, like, how, how West could proceed with sanctions, this idea of, of course, oil and gas embargo, which uh, even, I would say, in the language of politics, it means basically de facto war, like, Uh, this is like last resort would be for Europeans to like embargo Russian gas and oil, which some countries are already kind of doing, you know, the US and Britain doing this, but not the West. So in in this case, of course, like no one really sees it in Russia as just, just the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Of course, there is a very important like national component to this conflict, but of course, it's like a broader picture. And, um, of course, what Russia is doing now, it's more like a very strategical turn and pivot, not just to Asia, but basically, I would, I would, I would label it something like a putting like last nail into the coffin of this idea of unipolarity. And I guess this is, uh, 
resonates with the official Russian rhetoric. So they're saying something like, uh, you know, we, we entered a new epoch, there is no way back, and we're completely kind of like entering something new. So that's how I guess they see how they want to plan. I mean, as, as terrible as it sounds, but I mm. think that's something where most Western analysts would agree. Mm -hmm. And that we are now seeing a different epoch or that we're yes. now seeing a different era. And the way, mm -hmm. so I mean that this unipolar moment is over. I think that's maybe one of the few things where most analysts um, in mm -hmm. all countries can agree on. I think what is interesting, and I think that's that started with um, the, you, the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly on Ukraine. And it's, it's something that has been ongoing ever since in the in the last weeks is um also a very at least in Europe and North America a very narrow perception of how the Russia Ukrainian war is actually perceived in the rest of the world mm -hmm. or um i mean how others see that new multipolarity emerging and i found it very interesting that the interpretation of that Uh, General Assembly vote was uh, very different in, I mean, I, I, for instance, read an article in the Hindustan Times, so I mean, I, I, mm. I saw sort of an Indian perspective on that. And if you look around, I mean, you have countries like basically all the BRIC states mm. that were supposed to be mm. the new challengers, at least economically speaking, some 10, 15 years ago, mm. they all abstained mm. in the United Nations General Assembly, and you could read that in a way, as a tacit support mm -hmm. of Russia, or at least not an outright objection. Mm -hmm. So I think um, many people in, um, in North America, in Europe, feel rightly appalled by what Russian forces are doing on the ground mm -hmm. and from the air and, and, and everything, how they are bombing Mariupol and, and other places in, in, in Ukraine. But I think... Um, they sometimes overlook that um, even if there is all the justification for moral outrage, that there is a kind of political plane mm -hmm. um, that is playing out where we see, I mean, some geographers would maybe call it tectonic shifts that are happening. And I think they are not necessarily shifting in favor of what we both sort of uh, called the West. Okay. So, I mean, um, of course, we see that there is some kind of attempt to maintain that American-created liberal world order. Mm -hmm. um, I also don't agree with what you said earlier on that it is per se, I mean, that it is objected by Russia and China and others. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's certainly right. But I mean, I think at least the initial idea was to come up with an order that is at least in the interest of everyone, that it might benefit the United States more than others because it created that order and it puts most of The resources into preserving that order is a different story, but I think what we can now clearly see is that also by the institutions that those other countries are setting up, that we see, for instance, the IMF or the World Bank, where we see, for instance, an Asia Investment Bank. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all tendencies or signs that important states like India, but mm -hmm. primarily Russia and China, are not supporting the kind of world order that was established after the mm -hmm. Second World War. So, I mean, there is really a desperate call for, I mean, there is a desperate need for some kind of reform, some forum where mm -hmm. those 
new or old great powers can cooperate or at least mm -hmm. agree on certain yes. kind of arrangements because I mean quite frankly I think one of the the biggest disappointments is the entire UN system because I mean it's completely mm -hmm. leading nowhere at the moment I mean you see yes. the Security Council that is not able to live up to its task because I mean every time you have a conflict it usually involves one of the P5 so the permanent five those who have a veto mm -hmm. power and therefore you simply won't have any decision and then you have things like moral outrage but that um, doesn't lead to any political results yeah I guess uh, the whole complication and I guess the challenge of today and challenge of tomorrow and challenge of probably next uh, two, two, two decades would be to kind of like save or to kind of transform the world order without having a World War Three, And, of course, uh, the conflict between Russia and uh, U.S., or just basically the West, is just something like... It's, it's very little facet of what would happen if, uh, you know, the China and U.S. conflict. Um, and I guess it already shows that there is just a lack of uh, thinking in the U.S., because, I mean, what's, what's the U.S. Uh, the Western, just the Western reply is just more sanctions. Just let, let have more sanctions without actually... If you think about this period from 2014-2022, like so, eight-year period, there there were a lot of sanctions, but there was never actually a clear kind of signal what would like you know West, what kind of like reciprocal states West can take if Russia, for example, reverts its course. So they just sanctions, and we see it's it's you know it's like those sanctions almost you can say like they. Um, they have a, definitely a limit because they really detrimental to the whole global economy right now, like world economy or like global economic development, especially to poor countries. And uh, there's just lack of ingenuity, to be honest. Because what, what I see from my perspective, what the West tries to do, it really tries to save this unipolar moment uh, for as long as it can. And this is what sanctions are all about. So let's... And of course, for Americans, uh, I'm not really sure whether like, actually Europeans benefit from this, but Americans benefit from this idea of new Cold War because then they can you know, revert to their own industry. They can kind of like explain why like, the economy is not growing that well, why you have like, such big inflation. You can really kind of have this also like an enemy, so you can really kind of focus uh, on... Um, yeah, you can, you, can, you can kind of like... Explain many problems with uh, like uh, with an enemy, uh, and of course Americans, as we know, won World War, Cold War, and the whole like narrative of uh, liberalism versus authoritarianism, which is basically the same as uh, the idea of this Cold War, like, like ideolo ideological battle. Um, it's actually telling a lot about like how how Americans want to, I guess, save like this unipolar moment because I mean they still deny that we are some enter some new epoch. So they would, for them, it would be just maybe, I would say. But are you referring to Americans in general, or because I, I mean, I saw some. I mean, we've often discussed Mearsheimer, um, <laughs> but I mean, there are also other American academics and intellectuals who have maybe not the perspective that, or may may share that assessment that I would also share with you that mm -hmm. sort of the unipolar moment is over. But I mean, I would agree that there that's still the official position. Mm -hmm. But I mean. Um, I think what we would you basically say that this is hubris or what what is it that you think makes at least the official government line that this unipolar moment um is is still existence and and how do you see that situation with regard to Europe because I think um 
one of the interesting things we are seeing at the moment is also that there is, at least for the time being, some kind of stronger European or slash European NATO and, and US collaboration. And um, I'm rather skeptical with regard to the next three to five years whether they, that can be maintained. Yeah. Because at the moment we are having mm -hmm. cohesion uh, in Europe to a certain extent. I mean, we now also see that there are the first countries like Hungary where you have somewhat uh, unclear position mm -hmm. that officially supports sanctions, mm -hmm. but I mean, otherwise is having still pretty close relationships with Russia, not least with regard to uh, the energy dependence mm -hmm. that is even higher than Germany. But I mean, I think we, we will see similar things with the US and, and Europe. We also have mm -hmm. French thoughts. I mean, if, if you look at French military thought or geopolitical mm -hmm. thoughts over since 45, and you also know that they left um, mm -hmm. some decision bodies in, in NATO uh, under Charles de Gaulle and then re-entered just mm -hmm. rather recently, um, you do have different thoughts about whether there should be something like a European position. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm curious I mean, how that will play out. Yes, So um, I want to pick up actually on the on the verb here you said in terms of maintain. And I guess it's really right description because what happen, what's happening now you can you can say it's like the idea of uh, like uh, America mobilizing Europe. This is basically Cold War I guess thinking again like mobilizing is uh, uh, I wouldn't say colony but something as uh, in kind of like inferior in a way of of American thinking. So they always think that Europeans should align with them. And of course now, because uh, like, uh, because how situation kind of like is happening, it's easy to do. But as you said, of course, it's it's not true that you can really maintain this mobilization for a longer time. Even like after 2014, there was also like a pretty much a solidarity on European front. But then it started to kind of crumbling. And also, you can think of um, just before. Uh, this happened, there was like a, a very fierce debate on the European continent in terms of how should we proceed with European security. And also you can think about, it's not true that even the US can maintain this position for a long time, especially if Biden loses, maybe Trump will win, maybe someone else will win from the Republican side, and uh, they will come back to the idea maybe of uh, isolationism again. Come, uh, and, and of course there is there is a a good thinking in European and some European circles about this idea you cannot really forever rely on Americans uh, and also uh, in contrast to like uh, Cold War times you definitely have some power projection or you could have some power projection from European Union as, as an entity or at least from powerful Europe, European states when they cooperate together and um, that's what we see probably happening more or less uh, in the next like 10 years of course, you cannot really maintain this unity for a longer time. And uh, France was this kind of like, as you mentioned, with this uh, ambition to be slightly different. Because France, of course, raised them the, the, the most concern with, Europe, with, with the American foreign policy. They could really, you could see like, for example, peace settlement between, let's say, China, Russia and France. Uh, or something like this, because any kind of peace settlement will require, of course, like, as they call it, guarantors uh, who foreign powers. And most likely they won't be the U.S., of course, because uh, Russia hates U.S. And like I, I don't see any kind of sort of cooperation on this front. But it, it could cooperate, of course, with France 
oh, with maybe Germany, but no, no. You mean Russia cooperating with France? And China, for example, right? Eventually. So for instance, I mean, that could... But that would be a real politics thing, right? Because, I mean, yes. also the French would agree that, I mean, the, the Russian system we are seeing at the moment, the political mm -hmm. system, is is not something that we would like to see. So, But yes. that's what you mean, okay. Um, for instance, I mean, but that's uh, the time frame, but it's not very soon. It's probably... Uh, my my not prediction, I would say, my feeling that this war is for a while. I mean, it's actually, it's not a very short... I mean, it's the way, kind of, like, the Western narrative presented this war is something like Putin is losing because um, he planned for, kind of, like, very, kind of, like, short-term war, kind of, like, this small, victorious, offensive war. Uh, but I'm not really sure because the way they still prepared for something like a longer, you can say, war campaign... And we can, for example, see peace settlement in September or something like a ceasefire in, like, I don't know, before just winter because, I mean, you, you need this time to uh, readjust your forces, to resupply your forces, whatever you have. And we can see actually this war for a very long time in terms of it just depends uh, when Ukraine will crack. I mean, for, for, for Russians, it's pretty clear they, they have, like, those uh, very ambitious uh, goals in terms of... Uh, They, they want um, um, Ukraine to uh, um, recognize Crimea, Donetsk, Lugansk. Um, and Ukraine, until I guess the very last moment, it won't really agree to, this con to these conditions. So what we have, like, I guess it will be for a very long time. And as you said, it's something like a very tectonic moment in world politics. Um, this conflict will, kind of, will, will be happening throughout many kind of changes and many kind of other things in world politics. So it's just like, I guess, it's it, it just like one uh, one feature of this uh, kind of uh, transition period of time when we kind of like, we just like quite literally, uh, not lost, but I mean exited, and I just like ended like this chapter of history of unipolarity. You can also, I always like to think about how people would perceive in like 20 years when they, or like 30 or 50 maybe years when they open a history book and then they would have like this kind of chapter about like this conflict and you could definitely see this would con this conflict would be something like a real end of American hegemony and now we transition to something else and where we transition I guess it's really hard to say uh, and here it's really important to, to think about that uh, China really aligns with Russia and uh, it really strongly aligned with Russia You could also think of like Putin just went to China before the conflict started, to Olympics. Um, and this is, I, diplomatically you can say it's a victory for Russia, because once you have like a big, kind of like such a big body, which kind of like tries to be the new kind of the US, in terms of it tries to be like the, the, the near peer competitor to the US uh, power projection. It's a big deal for Russia, because now they're not really alone. You couldn't say they're alone, because at least they have China, It remains to be seen how China would help them economically. I think it would. It's in it's in Chinese best interest to, to kind of maintain Russia as a state. Um, but yes, I guess that's. Uh, I guess in 10 years it will be really kind of like a, a kind of like this little bit of st storm in terms of uh, many things would happen, and like this war would probably continue for a while and with, with us for a while. Which I, I'm afraid you. I'm afraid you're you're right that. All the signs that we saw where some people say, I mean, of course, there were those voices um, who said that Russia has has such a large army that uh, Ukraine would fall rather soon. Of, that hasn't happened. And 
now there were some voices who said that Ukraine could win that war. Of course, Ukraine can win that war if, I mean, winning that war means that Russia doesn't achieve its objectives. But I mean, uh, I mean that's also quite clearly at an incredible loss of of lives. And um, in that sense, it's not that Ukraine will be able to push out every. Uh, Russian soldier from Crimea, from Donetsk, from Dugansk this year. Because, I mean, some people now seem to be with all those pictures that they find on social media, that they seem to suggest that um, Ukraine is is winning and having an incredible pushback. Of course, they are pushing back Russian forces at the moment. There are some tactical retreats. Things like that are happening. But I think um, uh, by and large, if you go, if you if you now live in Berlin, if you live in, in other European uh, cities, if you live in countries that are even closer to the conflict, like Poland, mm-hmm. Romania, the Baltic states, you, we see a lot of mm-hmm. Ukrainians now also um, fleeing that we can, whom we can see at the, at, the, at the train station. So I think as such, we are, you know, we are seeing um, a humanitarian catastrophe, we're seeing um, cities bombed to rubble, but our understanding of it seems to be pretty much geographically limited to to Europe as such. And I think what we, as political scientists or, or analysts, because you love international relations, Dimitri, I think what we also have to look at are the global implications. And I think we see so many things where there seems to be something like a grand strategy, a Russian grand strategy, a Chinese grand strategy, an American grand strategy, but all of them are backtracking on certain levels. So, for instance, if you now see Russia is not able to remain in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh to keep up the peace, so we are seeing Azeri forces now actively challenging or basically... Mm -hmm killing, revising the, the sort of short-term status quo that we had um, after the war of two years ago. We're seeing now a very bizarre kind of realpolitik uh, reassessment of American-Venezuelan relations, where they even thought about, oh, we always supported Guaido, he was kind of the... The, the real Democrat and Maduro is is the evil per se. Now we're having very real political rapprochement to say, hey, is this something where we could figure out a way how to how to ensure that the West or America um, can rely on Venezuela and its hydrocarbon resources? And we are also, I think, seeing similar things in in China, where also it's pretty clear that China cannot really. Mm-hmm. continue its current Belt and Road Initiative where they have <clears throat> basically put up infrastructure everywhere. I think we, they are also refocusing because they are also seeing that their economy is not as stable. Mm-hmm. And if you think about stuff like the Evergrande mm-hmm. uh, construction company that is basically bust, mm-hmm. so uh, they, they are seeing also problems in terms of their own economic structure. So I, I think they will also have to refocus in a way and because they they have in a way also overstretched at least in terms of ambition what they wanted to build everywhere and i think mm-hmm. one interesting thing will be to look at the kind of military outposts if you will or, or the bases so i mean of course we have long established ones like diego garcia 
for for the Americans. And we have now this one in Djibouti of the Chinese. And we do have a Russian presence in Syria. So I think it's it will be very, very interesting to look at what is happening there. And I... I'm also very curious how Brazil will behave in, in foreign policy terms when it comes to, mm. um, well, basically how the Monroe Doctrine still plays out. So, um, if, they, if, they, if they want to invite Chinese to their military base. So I think um, if, if, you have, if you just read European papers, um, I think you will have a pretty Eurocentric perspective on the conflict. And of course, that's understandable and it's also fine. And that's our should be our primary objective. But I think it's also we shouldn't lose sight of what is what is happening else. Uh, for instance, what didn't make the news was also that we have a ceasefire. At least that's what I read five days ago, um, where you now have for the first time since more than a year, more or less, um, a cessation of the conflict in Ethiopia. Um, but I mean, um, but. What we also saw uh, were Iranian rocket attacks into the Kurdish territory of Iraq. We see also um, Iranian rocket attacks to, at least I think it was Iranian, um, to the close to the Formula One track in, in Jeddah, in, in Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, yes. we're seeing a lot of regional conflicts or that are playing out and where there used to be this kind of superpower influence and if you if you look at how Saudi Arabia reacted to the demand by the Americans to say hey we need more oil I mean the Saudis didn't move an inch I mean so what Biden now had to do is release more of the strategic reserve yeah. so I mean I think in that sense we are also seeing a lot of western hubris in that sense or we we still think that there is a lot of support For the Western position, with, with Western, I mean sort of USA, Canada, of course, mm -hmm. Europe, bar Belarus and Russia, and uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, those countries. But I think, um, yeah, it's that, that sort of victory, if you will, um, is, is not really certain, or that support globally, because I think there are an, a lot of countries... They are sitting on the fence and really waiting how things play out. And I think they, those are basically those who abstained in the General Assembly, like oh. countries like India, like Pakistan, like Bangladesh, mm -hmm. Brazil, South Africa. And then we are also seeing, of course, the regional dynamics playing out now with an America that has already pulled out increasingly out of the, the Middle East. Mm -hmm. We are seeing new um, alliances between Israel with the Abram Accords, but now we again see of course, that conflict of Iran with some of its neighbors playing out. And mm -hmm. I already mentioned the, the Caucasus. We had mm -hmm. South Ossetia declaring that it would reconsider or consider actively joining the Russian Federation. So I think there are a lot of things happening. Yeah, they, and, and we don't really see that, or a lot of analysts don't take that into consideration. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, because if you if you want to again, it's coming to my point. If you want to kind of make an effort to kind of save this unipolar moment, that's what you do. You really try to kind of put a almost like a mask and saying like, "Hey, we're still there. We're still controlling everything. It's still rules-based international order." That's what they're saying, right? In every kind of rhetoric, in I'm every all speech. for I'm all for that for that liberal order. 
but, but I mean, this, this but I mean, of course, it's it's in a way hollow now because you see mm-hmm. a lot of backtracking on all sides, and I mean, mm-hmm. one is, for instance, really that mm-hmm. that new reconsideration how to treat Venezuela, and of course, there yeah, you well, also see the gap between. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything that is is sort of the value-based rhetoric um, Mm -hmm. or at times very morality-based arguments and then also really Mm -hmm. clear, almost Bismarckian realpolitik. I I would just say, for for, for me, I would really equate rules-based order to American hegemony or to unipolar moment because what's what's the point of rules-based order? There is some kind of like authority that you can appeal to in terms of like if there is a conflict. You can appeal to authority as authority. It's kind of like a state or a state uh, in, in, like in a quite literal sense. But of course, in international relations, we know there is no such authority. There was authority for like this 30 years. There was American superpower that could really kind of like, because of its power, its, its power projection, both in terms of militarily and ideologically and just soft power, whatever you call it, they could really kind of like be a, as a, a, an authority, but now it's gone. So for me, the most interesting question, of course, that would be, uh, it's interesting if Americans failed to solve like Ukrainian conflict in the sense of I still, I would, I would kind of like align with Mersheimer saying that it's the West to blame for this conflict because West did nothing to solve it or he actually contributed to kind of inflating this conflict, so to speak. Um, then there is no way you could solve China the U.S. conflict, because China is a completely different culture. I mean, in Russia, you could argue that Russians are still Europeans. They have, like, still tit pro quo thinking. And it was really way much easier for Americans to just solve this problem by arranging. For example, before the war happened in Ukraine, I, I think there was all possibilities for Americans to be a guarantor of no NATO, to be a guarantor of Ukraine, but now it's gone. So now... If there is like a peace settlement, it will not include Americans because I mean Russians made it clear, and they try to to say, hey, Ukraine now doesn't have Crimea. There is a civil war, and you couldn't really accept country with a civil war to NATO. But of course, American rhetoric was like Ukraine has right. So again, coming to this idea of authority, but we need to come back to this uh, to this thinking that there is no authority in international relations. Unfortunately, that's 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 the case. There is like a really chaos. Well, that's of course the re- the realist sort of. We have this anarchy in the world, and yes. then there was the strong social constructivist position that hey, we do have norms, and we do have also the institutions to mm-hmm. at least but regulate certain things. And I think I think there is, but the problem is really, of mm-hmm. course, you own. It only works if you have a consensus, and if you have, a, you have if, a, if you have a consensus that. Um, all countries follow those norms, at least to mm-hmm. a certain extent. And then, uh, then there is, of course, this factual American exceptionalism that at times when America considered that those rules were not necessarily in their interest, that they overstepped them or that they somehow bended them to an extreme extent. And, of course, uh, wars like the one in Iraq are a case in point where you'd say, well, I mean, even if there was no explicit approval by the United Nations Security Council, mm-hmm. for instance, they still went to war with, uh, with, 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 with Iraq. I would rather disagree with regard to, uh, to Yugoslavia, but I think in that sense it's an academic debate because, I mean, it's, it's now... Yeah, of course, it's, it's a way how you, how you perceive that, how you interpret 
history. But I mean, if we look forward, I think um, what we can say is that there is an, <clears throat> an incredible disagreement on the motives of the different countries. I mean, when I read most of the press today, um, I would personally say that maybe the uncertainty of um, the sort of keeping keeping the question of the membership action plan and, and membership of NATO um, sort of unclear in a way for Georgia and, and Ukraine may at least have contributed to different perceptions between Russia and and NATO. I, I mean, I would concede that maybe, but I would certainly not share your position that mm -hmm. um, that per se contributed to the war. I mean, that there is that, I mean, war usually is not something where you have I mean, now you have one side that started at Russia, but I mean that there may be some kind of justifications. Well, maybe, may but I think it's it's interesting to see now that we we see a, a different narrative now than that is that the the war in the full scale attack now on on Ukraine is the revisionist Putin, Ruskimir uh, Novorossiya um, kind of imperialism that we have seen already in Georgia, that we've seen in, in other places. And I mean, that, that's, that, that's, that's sort of a narrative that I, where I simply mm. have to say that well, uh, it, it's, it's interesting how it plays out. Because I would I just mean, challenge you in a sense like, why would Ukraine put membership to NATO in its constitution in 2019? Many, many people in the West, they just simply forget about this that Ukraine officially declares that its strategic goal is to become part of NATO. And no one, of course, objected in the West to this, because, of course, Americans, it's in their thinking to, it's in their thinking to turn uh, Ukraine into NATO. And, of course, they, it also plays uh, with the ideas that, you know, when Putin is gone, maybe there would be regime change, or maybe we should put Navalny, and Navalny would say okay to NATO. And something like this, that, that, that's their politics. So their politics is basically, as Putin basically said, uh, declaring offensive operation, he said, like, it's the question of time. Because West clearly said, well, it's not on the card right now, but what does it mean? I mean, is it, is it in the card in 10 years, in 20 years? So it's like, again, strategic long-term thinking. If, like, Russia does nothing and there is internal conflict in Ukraine, uh, it doesn't accept Crimea, it doesn't accept Lugansk and Donetsk right now, there will be probably, if Ukraine joins NATO, just imagine if the war didn't happen, Ukraine would join NATO, And then you have uh, probably, as you see, for example, with Poland now, it's really trying actively to provoke Russia, trying to kind of like, you know, kind of use this Article 5 guarantee because, I mean, it's safe to provoke, so to speak, more, much more conflict. Then we would probably see definitely World War Three in terms of if Ukraine starts offensive operation, kind of provokes Russia, and Russia attacks Ukraine with the Article 5 guarantee, then it would be like even bigger problem. And I guess like this, this is the core Russian narrative, you can say. And I don't think there is, there is no kind of like truth to that. Because, again, Ukraine declares itself, it, its strategic goal is to become part of NATO. It's really in its constitution. You couldn't really go around it and say it's not. I mean, it's, it's, it's written in the constitution. So, you know, how... how I, I would still boil it down to the two narratives, because, I mean... Uh, 
at least the NATO self-understanding is, of course, that of a defensive alliance. Now, you will maybe say, well, I mean, NATO, also the way it, um, it started its operation in, in Kosovo, that was something offensive. I mean, um, maybe, but I think the, 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 the main problem now seems to be that that problem, um, it's, it's sort of the neo-imperialist aggressive Russia versus a defensive... Um, defensive European perspective. No, I mean, I, I, what I want to say is yeah, 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 the, yeah. these, these course, seem to be the, 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 two, the two narratives. And, and But can I just uh, yeah, sure. add, I would say it's, for, for me, it's neo-imperialist aggressive Russia versus neo-imperialist liberal West. I mean, it's, it's just a clash of, you can think of, Israeli political thinking is a clash of interests. But there is a, of course, there is a new imperial America, there is new imperial Russia. And NATO is just an instrument. Of course, of course, uh, I guess, uh, and NATO is just it's at the hands of Americans. When Americans want NATO to do something, NATO does something. If America don't want NATO to do uh, anything, NATO doesn't do anything. And that's I guess, I guess the the problem. And of course, I mean, for me, like in '90s, NATO either should have been reorganized into some. You, you I mean, even like. A simple step is renaming NATO, just, you know, Pan-European Security Organization, something like this, because, I mean, eventually, because it admitted uh, Eastern European nations, it became something more than just, you know, what was during Cold War. But just because it stayed the same, and because the same people work now in NATO as during the Cold War, I guess uh, for, for them it's really, it's really easy to kind of like come up with this idea of enemy, it's really easy... It's also like their own justification why NATO exists, so to speak. Of course, a lot of people, it's not just Americans, of course, but a lot of like bureaucracy in Brussels, they really want this to go on because they have good salaries and stuff like this. And I mean, they're valuable international player. If you also think maybe not in, in terms of, just not about states as players on the international arena, of course, NATO is a big player in its own right, so to speak. Um, but for me, yes, for me, for me, it's like, I would really challenge you to say it's, it's, it's neo new imperial Russia versus new imperial America. Because, I mean, I would say eventually things are decided in, in Washington, not in, in Europe, so to speak. Um, that's what we discussed of Michael. Well, and, I, I, uh, I, I think that, of course, there is a geopolitical element to that. And um, be, uh, therefore, I think it's interesting also to move beyond the military mm -hmm. level and also maybe to have a look at what is officially not a military organization, and that is the European Union, and also look at um, ideas of how the cooperation within Europe mm -hmm. um, could be structured. And um, there are all sorts of rumors coming out of the ongoing negotiations between the Ukrainian and the, and the Russian side, and then there are things that are uh, supposed to be considered by Russia and then things that are supposed to be approved by Russia. And I think one of the interesting things was that there were these rumors and speculations that the Ukrainians said that <clears throat> the Russians had actually accepted that Ukraine could become part of the European Union. And I think what, what the Kremlin eventually said is that they, that they confirmed that they had received that proposal, which of course is a different story. But I think if, um, if we were to to move that to that kind of economic collaboration. And it's, it's also, I think, an aspect of the self-understanding of, of the EU as, as a sort of guardian of peace and of 
prosperity. Um, yeah, I, I think that's at least in the long run uh, something that is that is important. So, I mean, if we don't see something like a new Cold War where we have also um, a severing of ties between Russia and the rest of Europe, be it in terms of economy and uh, exchange of scientists and researchers and civil society and, and whatever, um, I think the only other option will be some kind of um, way to, yeah, to, to basically come up with the ideas that Schumann and others had after the end of, of the Second World War. So, I mean, mm -hmm. maybe since you asked in the very beginning of some things where we could be optimistic, I think where we technically have to be optimistic in a way is that there, that there must be one day, we don't know whether it's in 10, 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. um, new ways how... Oh, Russians right. and and Americans Europeans and, and also um, Americans somehow try to get along because I mean oh, uh, yeah it's 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 strange that so many Western observers were focusing on on subjects like climate change which is of course important but we should, I mean, we should of course know less possible without Russia and without global <coughs> cooperation again coming to the point if you want to have a climate change policy. You, you need to have everything, everyone on board. You need to have, like, in terms of peaceful... Uh, uh, nations live in peace. And, uh, I mean, as I... As you, I also have to need a, you also need an economy that works. You also have to uh, yes. consider things. What is the kind of energy we need? And, of course, you have an incredible disruption at the moment. I mean, and that's course. already a euphemism. But, I mean, um, everything that the entire strategy or the entire idea of the energie vendor, right? That, that mm. sort of transition to a carbon-free um, economy mm. in, in Germany was considered. I mean, everything is gone now at the moment. And I mean, there are also... Mm. I mean, it's got, I think it's actually gone because, uh, like, why it's gone, I think, because, again, China. And, of course, I really expect China to move on South, inside South China Sea Um Oh, because, and, you know, if you don't have China on climate, climate change, and it seems uh, they're not really in agreement with the U.S., then you don't have just, you don't have, like, any kind of global climate change policy, right? It's not possible. It's like, Russians benefit, actually, the most from climate change. So you can think Russians don't really think about climate change, because, I mean, they're not really, for, the, for them, it's like all this land that now is, uh, um, it's kind of like an empty land with a frozen land, it will become in 50 years probably a very prosperous kind of like a piece of land where you can grow stuff uh, for, for, and also you have a North Sea a trade route. So Russians actually benefit from it so they don't really think about climate change but if they think about China, if they think about like other nations. Well, I mean the whole idea of climate change policy is basically gone because it's not really important anymore. Of course you will have, you will see and hear European Well, I think it's important. I think it's, it's actually what many people lament, and rightly so, that I think that there are things that are important, globally speaking, mm -hmm. um, to come up with a concerted effort and, and to, to, to join forces. But, I mean, of course, now nobody's talking about that anymore. And, I mean, no, I mean at, 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 at some stage we have to... We have to European discuss still the talking, burden I mean. sharing and, and, and also how we, how we want to move forward on on that front i'm i'm not sure whether everything will be that rosy in, in russia but that's i mean something because i'm not the the climate mm -hmm. uh, expert that's something i don't know but i um, i also know that something we already discussed that very 
sort of distorted Western perception of, for instance, things like the Paris Accord that we didn't talk about so far, <clears throat> is for instance mm -hmm. that also the Indian contribution, for instance, there mm -hmm. is that they basically limit the growth of carbon mm -hmm. dioxide they may emit. So, I mean, mm -hmm. <clears throat> their contribution is basically to just say, hey, we don't put... 8% uh, more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year, mm -hmm. but we limit ourselves, if I'm not mistaken, to 4% per year. Okay. So, I mean, and that you then still it have is, a discourse uh, or you then still have media basically mm -hmm. saying, well, the Paris Accord is kind of that ideal global instrument mm -hmm. to bring down greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. And what you can see is that the, mm -hmm. the level of seriousness, one might say, or the at least the the kind of efforts that are being made, they are very, very different. So, I mean, as such, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, a, it's also a very pragmatic approach to say, hey, we ask every country, what is it that you think you can contribute? What is it that you think is sort of just? And mm -hmm. that may also explain why this mechanism works, at least on paper, because, mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have that, now coming back to the liberal rules-based order, mm -hmm. where you have somehow one hegemon saying what should be done. So, I mean... Which it, was, it, uh, I mean... Coming to the point, it was very reluctant. I mean, it was basically very ignorant to, to climate change. I mean, the U.S. is not really a big proponent of, of climate change policy, as we know. So coming to the point, I mean, we discussed it a lot, but I mean, in these 30 years, I, I would basically say, like, this 30 years was like just a failure of American... I mean, they just failed in, in any respect that they could fail. They failed. And also, again... But that's what will be written in the history books. Because, I mean, if you think about what yeah. what, what is currently being written and also what was written mm -hmm. 30 years before it was hey that was the end of history that was the unipolar moment that was success right? that, was, mean, that, that was, was that was um the transition to a better mm -hmm. world to a more democratic world and of course you see an incredible rollback you even have american institutions then like freedom house basically documenting mm -hmm. even if you don't like their kind of mm -hmm assessment of how they measure democracy but mm -hmm. you can certainly observe that there is a rollback i mean there are less democracies in the world now mm -hmm. and i'm again i read an interesting interview with francis fukuyama who mm -hmm. i think two weeks ago said he is actually expecting an increase now in democracies because that's what the ukraine conflict is telling us and um, i'm i'm i, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't I, trust I'm at, I'm, at least, I'm at least skeptical when it comes to that i mean i would hope so no i mean uh, uh, if you ask me but i'm i'm i think he's uh, fukuyama, there he would be too optimistic for me fukuyama for me is personally one of those uh, scholars that people put on the pedestal and say it's a real scholar but he's not i mean he like end of history was a failure like i mean he actually failed in terms of his predictions and since then now he's i guess chairs of this like democracy institute I think Prince Lam is somewhat one of the Yale, Yale uh, Ivy League institutes. Um, and I mean, for me, it's like, a, it, it's actually like the image of a scholar that is not real scholar. And it's, it's actually like propaganda. I mean, it's, it's openly propaganda. It's not, what, he, what he's doing is not real scholarship in terms of he doesn't do research. Oh, I think, Dimitri, you have harsh words saying he's a... I mean, he's I, I, like, I, I would I would consider him something like a political how analyst, people, right? How people, I mean, his but how people use him, like people use him to justify and say, "Look, this is a real scholar." Or that's what he's saying. But like, what you need to say, hey, hey, is Hilkuyama and hey, is Emirshaima, and then when you listen to them, you can kind of find that something in between that is more or less. Uh, objective, if you can say something, there is no. I mean, probably there is nothing, uh, nothing objective. But or at least you can compare the opinions and say, well, 
they have like a drastically different opinions and they're both very smart and they're both very knowledgeable in their own spheres of knowledge, so to speak. Um, but that's not how things happening in the West. In the West, you have like something like a kind of puppet scholar, like uh, you could also say Anna Applebaum, like what's her name? He, she's like kind of like Fukuyama style journalist, Fukuyama style intellectual. He just basically frames this whole conflict. Oh, even, even Yuval Harari, who is a historian, formidable historian, wrote many interesting uh, you know, stuff about history, but now he's all about like democracy versus autocracy. You're basically contributing to this narrative, uh, which, I mean, of course, who benefits from this narrative? Mainly Americans. I don't think Europeans contribute from this narrative for the simple reason, because they live very close to Russia, and it's in their best interest to have good relationship with Russia, whether it's in energy. Well... I mean, it, well, it's like eventually engineers need an understanding that we live in the same kind of house, in European house. There is no way to escape it because Americans, they're very safe. And from their perspective, they can do whatever they want because, I mean, no one would ever attack America uh, only with the nuclear weapons. That's, that's the point. They can do whatever they want. They can invade Iraq. They could, uh, I don't know, send... They can, you know, have a no-fly zone in, in Libya or even in Ukraine in the future because they feel very safe as a, as a security community. But they don't feel. I think they are. Um, yes. I, I would like to take up one point that you mentioned. I mean, um, you have also <laughs> some harsh characterizations of those figures. But I think, um, I think we should unpack one aspect, and that is... Um, I share your opinion that this sort of black and white contrast of democracy versus autocracy is, is sort of a bit too simplistic. Mm -hmm. But I think it points to something that is really important here, and that is, um, do we in the West believe that with all the faults that our democratic systems have, do we still think it's superior in the sense of better for the people? living in a democracy? And I would agree and say yes. The question then, however, is how do we cope with the double standards that we produce on a regular basis and also the kind of militancy with which we push that kind of thought? And um, I see, again, coming back to the unipolar moment or unipolarity, we also see that entire idea of what some people suggest that the neocons were all about this this idea of bringing democracy to the world sort of a, a post wilsonian or wilsonian 2.0 uh, push to democracy the world over has has really failed i think the empirical basis for that is pretty clear everywhere where we try it we have mediocre results if we take parts of iraq we have a complete failure in afghanistan um Uh, the same goes the same goes for Somalia and other places. So I think there, of course, has been an incredible hubris about this idea to bring democracy to the world, and something that was clearly an, a sort of Western American project. But I think we really have to differentiate that. Um, do we think that our political system is one worth preserving and also worth fighting for? And I think... But I mean, if that is something I would, I would support. But I mean, if, I would, if, yeah, just just adding to this point, I would ask anti-vaxxers in Germany how they feel about democracy right now and freedom. Because for me, democracy is a complicated concept. It's not the same anywhere, to be honest. In every country, you have its own way of democracy. 
there, there should be understanding that there is... Uh, democracy is like, yeah, if you think about the parliamentary terms, for example, I don't consider even America a democracy, not just because of uh, deep state and just because of uh, presidential, basically imperial powers that like the president of the US has, especially in terms of foreign policy. Uh, it's very different... The deep state is something like a conspiracy theory. Oh, well, I mean... No, I mean... <laughs> Well, you can have a bureaucratic apparatus, security, military-industrial complex. That would be Eisenhower's words, okay. Call it whatever you want, but there is definitely a feeling that in terms of foreign policy agenda, there is something more to the president who runs the show. There is something like a group of people who actively kind of like... I mean, and you, mean that, you mean the, there are vested interests in the bureaucracy? Maybe no, I mean, can... you think about the Pentagon. Pentagon is a state in itself. It has uh, as much money you can think of, uh, as much power in the US political system as any other kind of state in the world. So uh, much more power to it, so to speak. No, but I mean, what I'm trying to say is like, if you really ask how many people, I don't know, in Germany not vaccinated, or in France, or whatever, like, how do they feel? How, like, how does Novak Djokovic feel about democracy, so to speak, when he is denied, like, you know, one of the healthiest persons in the world, denied access to, like, Australia Open? How, is it really, like, and again, like, democracy is constantly transforming. It's constantly, it's constantly updating, so to speak. It's not the same. And, of course, democracy... If you ever imagine democracy in Russia, it will be a different type of democracy than in, in, in France. But democracy in France is different than democracy in Germany. Democracy in Germany is different from democracy in the gas. Well, I mean, it's a very complicated concept, and democracy cannot be universal, so to speak. It's really a local phenomenon that's kind of like interplay of elites, of groups of people, of checks and balances, so to speak. And every system is different. Sure, but it has, it has some sort of procedural... I mean, yeah, elements for me, and, and, and they can be compared. So you can, me, you can again, for instance, yeah, sorry. Just, just, just adding on the point, for me, it's really all about, uh, of course, the ideal type would be parliamentary democracy. So really when you have a bunch of people constantly kind of like having discussion like we have right now, and they're trying to figure out how we should live as a nation together. That for me would be ideal. But again, coming to back to America, well, you have many, many problems with that. Like, um, so... Yeah, that, that would be my, my point, sorry. Sorry for this detour, so to speak. Um, well, I guess one of the problems we also see is that we also have an, a lot of people that we don't... We can address them, mm -hmm. but we don't reach them in the sense of even if they form part, if they are able to vote, they don't want vote, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we also have an ongoing debate and... Uh, political science, those who look at voting behavior, those who look at electoral results, electoral campaigns, that we have two strange trends. And one is that we do have more or less, if they're not extremely polarized, uh, the elections or the electoral campaigns, we have mm -hmm. a decrease in the number of people who vote as such. Mm -hmm. Those who basically, you know, went into uh, mm -hmm. some kind of state of of inner migration say, well, if I vote or not, it doesn't change anything. That's sort of the mindset. And then you also have the aspect that um, an interesting thing um, is that a lot of people who used to, I mean, we refer to as working class, I mean, um, switch their political allegiance from left to right-wing parties. So, I mean, no matter where you look at, you, I mean, Trump supporters, 
supporters of the Conservative Party in Britain, um, French mm -hmm. factory workers working uh, voting for Le Pen, mm -hmm. or now the more you have, um, of mm -hmm. course, also AFD supporters. I mean, they, they also come from all walks of life, so I, I think there's, it's also a, there's a, like, a naive stereotype to say these yeah, are yeah. all the disenfranchised, all yes. what, what, uh, what Clinton called, Hillary Clinton called, Uh, deplorables, uh, back of deplorables. I think it's n it's not that, but I, it's something at least also a phenomenon where we see uh, where where I would also concede and and accept your criticism that, um, of course, if we try to lump mm -hmm. the assessment of all our democratic systems in the West together, then mm -hmm. um, it has certain weaknesses and um, mm -hmm. um, also challenges it faces. And and I think one is really making people aware of the of the advantages of a democratic system also of the abilities to actually influence decisions to mm. take part in that i mean you can you can run uh, and mm. become member of a municipal parliament then you mm -hmm. can take decisions on oh should this swimming pool be built or should we have i don't know invest more in the kindergarten or yes. in I in mean. in that kind of i don't know way to um I mean, build oh, this oh, playground or, or have, I don't know, whatever, uh, renovate our town hall, things like that. I mean, that's something you can do, but I mean, it's, it's something that most people don't seem to be aware of um, or not take into consideration. So um, I, I, I agree. Mean, we, the, the, are, we also see some uh, a crisis of democracy. And I mean, there have been millions, not millions, but hundreds of books mm -hmm. that you can find that lament the state of democracy in the yes. United States, in Canada, in 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 the rest of of the West. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, uh, we uh, also have to do our homework, I guess. I guess it's dangerous because when democracy becomes something like a universal tool or universal concept, it really it's very kind of saturates this idea that it's simply ideology. I mean, uh, you. I mean, and then it comes comes together with this idea of regime change, which is of course like very stupid because like whenever like there was a regime change, there was just a failed state. Like you can think about yeah, but Iraq. I mean that's that's when you when you force when you sort of actively force democratization. I think the only but which is two again, historical examples that worked were Japan and Germany, I guess. But because there was American military and there, there was, was a, uh, of course there was a there was a certain military presence and, uh, and, and there was also the time. Pulled. I mean I mean there are some some historians who argue that the reasons why it was a success mm -hmm. was because um, there was what is referred to as denazification and also, I mean, learning the rules of the democratic game, but I mean, that took a, uh, a presence of but there the would allied be... forces for 40 years and I mean, that's not what most democracies are now willing to spend on, right? They're not but willing they to say, hey, we stay in that country for 40 years. Yes, but there would be, of course, some scholars who would argue that in, in its core, Germany was always kind of like, kind of like, not, not this, in, a, in a sense, there was a, a still a consensus among elites, it still, it still was a Kind of like a type of government built around not like a just one strong figure, but around sort of the consensus of a group of Germans coming together and working together. I'm I'm pretty sure in in Japan, I guess Japan democracy is, is a very different from Germany democracy. It's not two types. It's, it's completely different systems. Um, and yeah, I mean, but but. I guess it's just the whole concept that it just blinds you. Like you really think that you could solve all problems with just uh, declaring all states democratic, and then it will be peace in the world once all states are democratic. Which is, of course, 
just the hubris. It's just the well, that, I I would agree that that's an ideology yes. or that's that's a naive thought. But, but as, it, I mean, as such, the idea that to have all or most of the states in the world being democratic states, having a uh, free press, an open civil society that can participate and also influence decisions. I think that's something that is, um, I would very much appreciate. Um, but again, the question is, of course, um, what does that mean in terms of other countries trying to influence others? And I mean, um, again, I think we, we, we already agreed now numerous times that um, this concept or attempt to democratize states by force has usually has, has usually backfired. I mean, the exceptions I, I cited or the, the exceptions I gave were, I think, um, Japan and, and Germany, but that's, that's also a different um, yes. time period, of course. Yeah, and I guess um, I can agree with some of your points, uh, uh, but I think eventually uh, what I guess should really get from this conflict in Ukraine It will be kind of like my final words uh, in our discussion, uh, that um, we should really move to something else. And move to something else will eventually mean to be open to new ideas and just new thinking, and just basically updating your own ideas, so to speak, because uh, unipolarity is dead. And I, I would like be very bold to say that rules-based order is dead, because unipolarity is dead, because, again... If you remember, I equated those terms. For me, unipolar moment is ruled-based order because there is an authority in the system. Again, like why state exists, like you can really think about it. Rules-based order, this was the idea that there is some kind of a state because, I mean, you couldn't have actually legal system without a state. You couldn't have a state without a government. So without like this kind of like a, 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 like a source of authority, so to speak, a source of power in the system. And it's gone. So now we have to be open to new ideas. And of course, I, I don't have a definite answer to that. But what I can definitely say, uh, people should really kind of start opening up to new ideas. They should start really thinking about ways differently. And even like really trying to understand Russian perspective or Chinese perspective or Indian perspective or whatever perspective you have. And you cannot do it with uh, this fixated kind of point of a unipolarity or this fixated point this is like, oh, this is all about uh, our democracy, this is our authoritarianism. This is what really prevents you from kind of like opening to new ideas because when you, once you see that something is like, you know, when you have this mindset that's all it's all about is about authoritarianism versus democracy, once you have an article that has a different opinion, you'll just close the article and say, well, this is bullshit, this is like all paid. <laughs> It's, that's the point. This, uh, that will be my final word. So do we want to kind of comment on this and uh, work with that? Dimitri, I think I, I agree with you on the point that <clears throat> we see a contestation of the liberal sort of world order. Um, and I've, I think if you see contestation and if you see that a number of important states like Russia, China and India, mm -hmm. um, to a lesser extent, are not... Um, fully in line with that and not supporting it, there must be something that it has to be replaced with. And I mean, this has to be something that um, maybe something like a Congress of Vienna-like 
um, idea. That was back then, of course, spheres of influence. So I'm not talking about spheres of influence. So God forbid, I mean, my idea was not to say I, I want to have a revisionist idea of, but I mean that there is that there are some that there is a let's call it regulatory framework or some kind of um, mutual mutually accepted positions of um, how decision making. Um, how preserving a global order should look like. So that, I mean, no, no, no country completely objects to that. And I think for that, of course, there must be, uh, there must be, there must be a different approach from all sides. And I think um, something that we should also always differentiate is there are things that we wish and I think maybe also rightly wished from a Western perspective, and that is that there should be an end to the, the war in Ukraine, that also wars should be fought differently, that wars shouldn't be fought at all. But at the same time, that's unfortunately somehow wishful thinking. So I think there, there are two ways um, to, go about, to, go about, to go about that. And I think one is to um, have political objectives, um, and also to communicate them clearly and um, then also to have certain values that um, you have to define that that may or that should that should also be preserved so I mean but I think when it comes to um, yeah I mean we in the West sometimes seem to see the world that um, everything should um, where there should be both a sort of political as well as value-based system that we are we are happy with, and I mean maybe it's also time to think when people call it the Zeitenwende, right, which is now the, the the new German term, that we also acknowledge that there are things that we may not like, that we even strongly oppose, but that we somehow have to cope with. And I mean, that is, that is something that I would say is true for, for Russian politics. The way, even if we despise everything that is, is, is happening, there must be, if we think about the future, there must be some way how to come up with, with a settlement. Because I mean, well, we know that there uh, has to be some kind of settlement. And I mean... And that, that's, um, that's probably democracy, actually. Democracy, again, is a concept of being pluralist, open-minded to new ideas. And that's, I guess, uh, just ending it up and kind of connecting uh, ideas because, of course, there should be, if you want to live in peace, there should be kind of, say, in a world system, kind of like the UN, but working the UN, where people actually go there not to defend their position, not to kind of promote their position, but kind of like to try to, almost like in a democratic, you know, kind of think in German Bundestag sense, settle their disagreements by reaching a compromise. And this, of course, involves being yeah. open-minded. I mean, promoting is fine, I think. If promoting means trying to argue, trying to convince a person. Yes. But, I mean, if you, if, you, if, you mean, it, if you mean enforcing it, then, of course, you're wrong. Yeah, but it all starts with an open mind because I don't really think, like, for example, the Americans are really open-minded, to be honest. I mean, they're actually very kind of, like, fixated on their own worldview and they really kind you of mean like the political washing because of course yes um, of course we are also sometimes fall into the trap of black and white and then oh, of course like the US <laughs> essentialize the Americans the Russians oh, yeah, the yes. Germans but I mean you on mean by and large by and large the, the kind of expert slash on international stage level. yeah yeah so I guess that would be yes uh, my final thought and thank you very much 
and hope to see you. Soon. Thank you, Dimitri. Thank you. Uh, uh, hope to see you again soon. Goodbye. Pleasure. <laughs> um,